OTB GAA. And all of a sudden, you know, Kerry are totally up. They never, ever got a chance to build again after they got a score. And that was down to Cluxon and the movement outside. Subscribe to the OTB GAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Shane Hannan here, the host of the F1 pod on Off The Ball, which is available every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the episode proper, however, I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the Grand Prix action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 pod from Off The Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado, the F1 pod. The F1 pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. All right, it's that time of the week again, and it is the F1 pod on Off The Ball. Episode 8 now, weekly between now and the end of the season, live on Wednesdays after race weekends in the Off The Ball daily podcast feed and also the F1 pod podcast feed. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, the F1 pod on OTB, brought to you by our sponsors, Chicago Town Pizza, real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. Keep your questions and comments coming in. I'm on Twitter at ShaneHannon01. Delighted to welcome back for episode eight of the F1 Pod. We've got Bernie Collins, the F1 pundit and former head of race strategy for the Aston Martin Formula One team. And we've got John Watson, the former Formula One driver and five-time Grand Prix winner. Bernie and John, how are things? Good, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for thanks for popping on. Spa is in the books, uh, one of the more enjoying uh, races, I guess, guys. And uh, Bernie, I suppose it, from an <clears throat> overtaking perspective, from a rain perspective, uh, those are the things that make Spa brilliant, and, and we got a bit of everything at the weekend. Yeah, we did, and I think one of the things that sort of stood out to me a bit was because we had so much rain all weekend. Actually, we went into the race with a lot of unknowns. I think both for us and for the strategists on the pit wall and the drivers and things, you always get a lot of overtaking at Spa, multiple stop race, overtaking threshold was quite low anyway. So yeah, there was a lot of overtaking. There was a lot going on during the race as well. It was Spa was one of your your favourites, John. Uh, in a word, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've only raced on it uh, once in Formula One and then about three times in Group C days. So that's going back to the 80s. But actually, I was only about 100 kilometres away from Spa because I was at Nürburgring for the weekend. So the weather that was catching Spa was then being sent down to us at Nürburgring. And I mean, very changeable, very rapidly changeable. One of the things that occurred, and I'll maybe get, give me a minute to go through this, because there was concern about the Grand Prix, about the Eau Rouge Radion entry to Camel Strait, based on the tragic accident that happened about a month ago to a young driver, 18-year-old Dutch driver. I think drivers were very sensitive about, can we race? Will we race? Is it going to be too wet to race? And I had a, a thought which I passed on to one of the, the, the stewards of the meeting. And the idea is, you know, the, the, at the end of, let's say, if the race has started under safety car, the safety car line then is the point which where the race gets released. But I suggested that maybe there should be a secondary safety car line, which would mean that when the cars came up to effectively the original line and the safety car peeled off, they would still be under what I'd call safety car conditions until they reached that second safety car line, which was, in my view, should be some way midway down the Camel Strait. So on the opening lap, instead of having that uh, congestion of cars all going through Eau Rouge, Radio, and Kennel onto the straight, it would be much more stretched out. Now, maybe it wouldn't be as exciting for the spectators, but it'd be an awful lot safer for the competitors. And bearing in mind that a Formula One car throws a lot more spray than a little sort of junior Formula Renault car would do. It was a, it was a thought. So Bernie, give us your best shot on that one. Mm. It's not a bad idea, John. I'm not need to put a bit more thought into it in terms of don't you know, dwell on would, it too long. Don't dwell no, no, too long. no, no, no. What would happen? You know, like lap two, but definitely for lap one, it would solve a lot of the issues in terms of the the start procedure. I think one of the problems that we have in F1 is the wet tire appears to be unusable. Um, the Pirelli wet tire. It's interesting. I've not fully read the comments, but Pirelli came out this week and said they agreed with the driver's feedback on it was pretty detrimental for your own wet tire compound. So a combination of that wet tire, people are very keen to get on the intermediate, which is then not clearing the track as quickly, which you know prolongs any problem that we have with the visibility. And you know they've tried various things to try and correct that. 
but fundamentally we need to get a wet tire that works that drivers are confident in that drivers stay on for the amount of time required without very quickly trying to get onto an intermediate so there's a few things that we can do to make it better it's a complicated one isn't it like the the driver uh, john you're talking about uh, Delano van de Hoff, young dutch driver um Killed in an accident after Adion, as you said, at Spa in the Formula Regional European Championships uh, a few weeks ago. He was only 18. It was a multi-car collision, wet conditions as well. It was the final race of the weekend. Of course, it was red flagged and not restarted. But um, it, it, safety is obviously paramount, Bernie, for, for any Formula 1 race. We know that. Um, and for these Formula 4 races as well. But does it does it go up a notch when it's in a place like Spa, uh, you know, place that has had a number of fatalities and not just Formula 1, but other races as well? It's really difficult. So if we think, I think of Spa specifically, you know, that young driver, as you said, got killed because they tried to restart the race and not finish under safety hard conditions. And we've had Spas, you know, not that long ago in F1, that I think the one that you were at, yeah. where we were criticising people for not starting the race. So we've had both criticisms there for not starting the race, for starting it too early. Spa is one where, unfortunately, in the recent years, we've lost two drivers. So it does, it is stand out on the calendar partially due because it's blind when you come up the top of a ridge over Adion that is blind going onto the straight at very high speed with not a lot of car control because you are still a corner at the end of the day and the weather conditions so there's two outliers at Spa that make Spa and that corner particularly difficult it's a bit we think of F1 now as being a very safe category we think that it's got a lot safer over the years definitely from like you know when John was racing or, or before that but in my time on in F1, we've had the Jules Bianchi incident, which was in Japan in the wet. We've had, you know, I was at Spa a few years ago when Anton unfortunately lost his life. And now this one, which, you know, I wasn't there. And for someone of my age in the last, you know, eight years to have had that many fatalities on a track, still pretty shocking statistic, really. Um, and it's all related to the wet conditions. We need to try and keep we can't just rest on it's a lot safer than it was 20 years ago yeah sure it is everything's a lot safer than it was 20 years ago that, that's not a reason to stop mm-hmm. so let's look at suggestions like john what others suggest? let's get a group of people around the table what can we do better to make this safer because it does really you know i, I wasn't obviously there in spa um recently but you know the previous fatality at spa it does it shakes the paddock and although that wasn't in F1, but it was a sport series for F1, the paddock is very shook and everyone, it really calms the you know, entire atmosphere. Everyone, it's in the forefront of everyone's mind then. And that's not good enough. We need to to try and improve. The the, the speeds, John, that, that um, Bernie mentions going over Radion and, and, you know, the blind, uh, I guess, corner that those speeds and going over the crest of a hill as well. Um like and and even when you're watching on 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 Spa on television and you see the spray even in the sprint race, like it it, it almost doesn't look maybe as bad as it would be for the driver. Like on television, you you see the the angle from above and you're thinking it's not the spray is not too bad. But maybe explain to us what that's like as a driver driving in conditions like that. Well, first of all, Spa is is in a part of Belgium and it's slightly higher than the surrounding countryside in forested areas, so it, it tends to attract. You know, bad weather. But let's not just think about the rain at Spa. I mean, I've been at Spa for goodness knows how many years for, for example, the SRO GT3 Championships. And in the Spa 24, we have had a number of really, really major accidents at the top of Radium. And the problem is in part the weather, that compounded. But the problem is fundamentally that uh, that part of the racetrack, as Bernie said, you climb up Radio you're blind until you get to the top and you're carrying a lot of speed. Even in a GT car, they're virtually flat out through that. And the same in junior formats when Antoine Huber sadly lost his life. That was clear, bright, sunny day. And it, it was an accident that sort of a chain reaction and it got worse and worse and worse. And tragically, Huber died. And it, it's a function of that part of the racetrack. So what do you do? Is it something you have to, you know, Spa has made changes to that part of the circuit to try and make it less dangerous. But the problem for me always appears to be you're climbing up, you're totally blind until you get to the apex at radio, at which point, if you're in a single-seater Formula 2 car, you're doing 150 miles an hour, 
Formula One car, you're doing 170 miles an hour. In a GT3 car, you're doing 125, 30 miles an hour, maybe even more. It's because it's a blind spot. And by the time you get there, if there has been a major accident, it's a big accident by virtue of the speed that cars are traveling. And that's what has to be addressed. The, the suggestion I made was a, a thought, principally for if it was a wet weekend. I didn't want to see a repeat of what occurred in 2021 when the event was cancelled. I mean, that was you know to cancel a Grand Prix. And it's a nightmare at every level, but it was done for safety. Now, the issue with the wet weather tyre, I don't know the detail of what drivers are complaining about. But again, referring back to what I do in GT3 with the SRO Championship, we have got wet tyres and we've got slicks. We don't have intermediates. Maybe then get rid of the intermediate and force drivers to race on whatever the Pirelli wet tyre is. The, the intermediate was brought in to sort of act as a buffer between wet and dry because if you're running on a Formula One car, you'd wear the wet weather tyre down extremely quickly if the track began to dry. And it was probably still too damp to go onto slicks. So there's work to be done on assessing what is the right step? Do you need an intermediate or are you going to bin the wet tyre altogether and not race until which conditions are sufficiently dry to enable the intermediate tyre to be effective? Yeah. John, can I just, just to come in on that, you know, people are going to sit at home and think there are lots of corners where beyond the apex it's blind. If we think of a flat corner where Monaco, let's think of Monaco as an example, or there are probably other corners that don't quite come to mind where you do actually sort of the hairpin in Japan, things like that. You do quite high speed um, and the beyond the apex is blind. But the problem at Spa is that when people have a shunt there, they don't necessarily travel a big distance away from the track or they come back to the track. Whereas if you have another 130R maybe in, in Japan, if a driver goes off there, he goes quite a distance away from the track and it's actually safe to the person coming behind. Whereas in Spa, when someone leaves the track or has an accident at that corner, often they come back to the track and that's where the blind issue happens because you are aware that there's a car one second, two seconds ahead on track. It's just the fact that if a person has an accident, they're back on the track very quickly. Is that right, John, or do you disagree with that? Well, say Spa is unique because it is the, the climb up from Eau Rouge to Radio. I mean, you've walked it, I suspect. I mean, I'm too old to walk it these days. <laughs> it is, it's, it's like a ski slope. It's like slash, you know, going off the side of the Eiger. It is extremely steep. So you're climbing up it, and you're coming through the compression of Eau Rouge, and you're sort of lining your car up to where you think the apex is, and most people actually put four wheels inside the apex, but now they're getting penalised for that. It's only when you reach the top of radio that then you've got visibility of what might have occurred. There is little time for a flag marshal who might be on the outside of radio to get his flag out and wave. And at the speed you're travelling, your focus and your eye line is principally on the apex. So it is probably the worst example. I mean, 130R in Suzuka is a great corner. And if cars go off, they normally go off to the right and Continue. Now, sometimes, I think it was maybe a year ago, two years ago, a car actually came back across the racetrack. But I don't think 130R is in the same league of, of, of concern as, as the, that sequence of corners through Eau Rouge Radio. Mm. And it's not once you get through that, then you've got the kink going onto Camel Street. So you, once you get to the top, okay, visibility and dry conditions is fine. But I remember one year, was it, goodness knows, way, way back when Kimi Raikkonen was in a McLaren. And a car just had gone through the kink and all of a sudden it blew up. And the circuit was just covered in oil and whatever vapor smoke. And Kimmy just went, or hacking on her it was, went through utterly flat out, didn't even think to lift. Now that's nuts to me, but it's an example of things that can arise extremely quickly. Unfortunately, Spa has got you know, these three great sort of corners on this long lap circuit. I don't know what the solutions are for dry. Uh, I made a suggestion for starting the race under wet conditions. I don't know what the solution is, whether you rearrange the whole sequence of corners back to more as it would have been. How I hate to say this, but back in the good old days, in the 50s, mm -hmm. when it was a distinct turn to the left, you had actually a stone bridge, which was, that was, the, was the sort of the demarcation between falling into the river Eau Rouge or staying in the racetrack. So it was a much more acute left, then back to the right, and then over the top. 
and cars in that generation were not going through. They're barely going through half the speed cars do today. So maybe it does need to be realigned and take away the, 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 the extremely high speed that now pretty much any race car is capable of carrying. Is there a is there a fear, Bernie, of change in Formula One, whether it's from the FIA or from even fans as well? You talked about Spa a couple of years ago when people wanted the race to go ahead and, and maybe it was best for safety for it not to. The Halo device was similar. You know, there was a lot of pushback until people accepted it and probably saved Roman Grosjean's life. Um, and even little things as well, like, you know, drivers wearing jewellery. I remember talking to David Kennedy about this and, and you know, the, the, something as simple as that that could be, you know, fatal if there's a fire in a car. Uh, like little things that there, there seems to be always pushback until people accept it, and 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 ultimately it's for the best, I guess, with all these issues. Yeah, definitely. And you know that's why the governing body, the people that license the circuit, all these things, they need to take control of this. It's not. I think the drivers love the corners. We all love the corners. Like John said, it's one of the you know spectacular corner to walk up. Yeah, it's a difficult walk, but. It's really interesting to walk up. You really get a sense for the elevation change. They've put in a nice new grandstand there now that wasn't there before so that spectators can sort of see it invisibly more. But at some point, these things have to change. You know, I imagine when we first put in real guards, if you think of it, along the side of the track, people thought, oh, that's going to obscure people's view or whatever it might be. But these things have to happen in order to progress and go forward. So that, to me, personally, that's up to the governing body, the people that license the circuit to say, we don't feel this is acceptable because unfortunately we're getting to a point where people are questioning if we should have a spa because of the accident. So if we're getting to that point, we need to make a change to save it, in my mind. You know, and I, I love that sequence of corners and you watch drivers go through it. But there are things that can be done and should be tried. You know, and in one way, yes, we're hesitant to change. But in another way, we've got spring qualifying now. We had the alternative tyre allocation a few weeks ago. We are trying new things. Why are we not trying new things mm. for safety? And like you say, that the runoff and stuff in that area has changed in the last few years but we've proven I think you know recently that it needs to change more uh, and that's what we should be trying to do it would be a shame John to get rid of spa from the from the the calendar wouldn't it I mean it's it's I know you're you said you're not the biggest fan but it but it is iconic well it's pretty much a unique circuit I mean it's the longest circuit in the calendar it's a very high speed circuit it's got great corners. I mean, those corners, I mean, for example, Blanchemont on the, on the climb back up towards the chicane at the pits. Blanchemont is a, is a shadow of its former self. I mean, again, when I raced at Spa, the last time I was there was about 1990. And the runoff that now exists at Blanchemont, uh, was, that was all forest. There was nothing there but forest. And one of the ironies of all the improvements that have come into Formula One as a consequence of trying to make it better, safer, maybe a more a more appealing uh, visual uh, show, is that drivers themselves have got this view that they're now they are now nothing can happen to them. They can't get hurt. The circuit safety is so good. The construction of the cars is so good. Everything they can't get hurt. And I mean, I I dislike that view because. You know, I come from a generation where we had to live with a lot more uh, danger in our sport and our profession than exists now. And I mean, just the other day, it might have been even yesterday, there's a clip of uh, it was Lando Norris in, I think, 21, coming out of uh, La Source, down the hill, flat as a pancake, turning in to Eau Rouge. And there were, I saw another view of it. Oh, there's no way he's going to make the corner. But he did it because he thought, I'm impregnable. I can do what I want. Nothing. I can get away with everything. And I feel that that view and attitude sometimes prevails too much as well. And not just at Formula One level. It's all the way down through the different formulas because youngsters are coming in and they're saying what they're saying with Formula One because that's the biggest degree of exposure motorsport gets in Europe. And they're saying drivers can get away with it. And they think they're in even in junior Formula cars and the construction of those cars is really, really good today compared to 50 years ago. But still, that fatal and tragic accident occurred a month ago at the support event to the Spa 24 Hours because there were just too many cars being released at one time. The spray going through the camels 
the king from the Camel Strait, you couldn't see a car. Mm. So I, I don't know what the answer is. It's probably not going to be a, a universally loved answer. And I think that spa, because look, spa is virtually every week. It, it's not a permanent circuit. It's in use, both for track days, for events that never even get onto the radar, international events, whatever. It's, the place is absolutely, you can never get a, a booking on it because it's virtually all through the year fully sold out. Mm. That thing you mentioned about the drivers, certainly if there's a God complex among Formula One drivers or an invincibility, that, that gets dangerous, you know, when, when, when drivers start having the, those sorts of attitudes. I think that the invincibility thing sometimes uh, needs to be, let's say, moderated because in spite of the halo, in spite of all the other things, I mean, you'd mentioned Roman Grosjean's accident uh, three years ago. I mean, I thought when I saw that, for sure, he must be a fatal, it was a fatal accident. And that was testament to the, you know, to the strength, the integrity of the halo. But the fact that, and I wasn't a fan of the halo because I want Formula One still to have challenges. I don't want it to be easy. I don't want it to, I don't want drivers to feel they're impregnable. I want them to know that there is still a risk in what they're doing. And if they lose that sort of respect, then I think you're losing an important value uh, as being a Grand Prix driver. Um, we will get to the race before we before we get to the ad break and we will get to the spa, I guess, uh, action at the weekend uh, in particular after the break. But Bernie, you, you've written a brilliant piece on Formula1.com. Uh, we are kind of assessing the strategy and you, you mentioned the fact that it's the, the, the sprint weekend and the whole format brings up uh, a lot of different issues for, for teams and strategy wise, I guess. Some people come out of it with smelling of roses. Some people come out of it uh, in a much more difficult light. But but it does, I, I'd imagine, for teams pose difficult problems these sprint weekends. Yeah, the, the sprint weekend does. And any weekend for a team, lots of people want different tests done. So the driver doesn't want to do any tests. He just wants to do qualifying laps. The race engineer just wants to do setup work. The aero guy just wants to test a new front wing, whatever it might be. The whole weekend is always a compromise of which tests are going to get done when and how the learning is going to come together, a standard weekend. And that's with three practice sessions to go through. Now, the sprint weekend throws up the challenge that you only have one practice session, even a normal non-spa weekend. You've got one hour to do all the learning, be that the upgrades, the setup, whatever it is. And therefore, the first thing that normally drops off because you're going straight into qualifying is your tyre learning. So the strategist misses and the tyre engineers, the long runs, what the compound delta is, how the degradation's looking. So you base all that on historics. You base it on what happened last year, how the tires are looking this year, how your car is performing this year, whatever it might be. So you end up with a lot more guesswork, for want of a better word, going into the race weekend. And that's interesting. That means a lot more reaction on the pit wall. And then Spa was different again in that the only time we'd ever done any dry running was at the end of qualifying. It's not really dry. It's just dry enough for the soft. Um, so you don't have any running on a medium and a hard, really, let's discount Lance's crash. So you've got no running on any of your race tyres before you get to Sunday. The track's in a different condition. It's very green. So lots of people are learning from the start. And you're learning, you know, for tyre degradation, for pace calculations. You're only really learning once you've got five or six good clean laps on the board to get a read on what the tyres are doing. And people are boxing by that point. So even that, you're not learning for another five or six laps. It was really interesting, I thought, watching how teams react, what they got wrong, what they get right. You get very easily swept into this. We need to protect position. Norris has stopped for the undercut. And actually, Spa, like we said at the top, easy overtaking. It needs to be split your stints nicely, get the best tyre make sure you're in the right positions at the right time. So it was, you know, it maybe didn't come across well on the TV necessarily, but it was an interesting one from the strategy side for me. Yeah, I'd imagine some some serious headaches for her, for teams. But Shane, just can yes, I just... On, don't forget, this is only ever happening. This Grand Prix and the 22 or three others are only happening because Formula One is owned by a company called Liberty Media. And they're in the business of making a show and entertainment. All the things that Bernie has said, which are totally correct and understand and you know, I would support, are of no, no interest whatsoever. And the second thing is <laughs> what the sprint, you can laugh, but what the sprint format has done is it has put a different 
dynamic onto everybody. But also, to some degree, it brings in a lot less predictability. It means that, apart from what Red Bull are doing, because they'll win under any circumstances, but it is getting away from the old format of the form book is A, B, C, D, all the way down to the bottom of the thing. It's getting away from predictability. So two things. Liberty Media are in this to make money. And they're not really concerned about what goes on in the garage. Those are the rules. Those are the situations. Get on and make the best of it. And if you don't like it, then, you know, whatever. And the second is the thing that Formula One has become so predictable over so many decades now. It is nice to have a format that might throw a bit of a spike in occasionally. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. It, it certainly adds a, an extra element to, to the weekend for sure and something else to look forward to on the Saturday. Um, we'll get to the race, the, the uh, Belgian Grand Prix action at Spa last weekend in just a second. We have to take a, a very quick ad break. But it's episode eight of the F1 pod on Off the Ball. We'll be back with Bernie Collins and with John Watson very shortly. One second. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. All right, you're very welcome back to episode eight of the F1 pod on Off the Ball, weekly between now and the end of the season, after race weekends, live on Wednesdays in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off the Ball daily podcast feed as well. Uh, it's myself, Shane Hannon, and I'm joined by Bernie Collins, the F1 pundit and former head of race strategy with the uh, Aston Martin Formula One team. And we have John Watson, the former Formula One driver and five-time Grand Prix winner. Um, Bernie, we should get to the to the action at Spa. And I mean... Uh, the, the the winner was hardly a surprise. Max Verstappen and uh, another twenty five points in the bag for him in those driver standings. Twenty two seconds ahead of his Red Bull teammate Sergio Perez with Charlotte Claire's Ferrari uh, topping up the podium. So the current standings we have Verstappen on three hundred and fourteen points, one hundred and twenty five points ahead of his teammate Sergio Perez in second. Uh, Fernando Alonso now third in the driver standings on one hundred and forty nine points, just one ahead of Lewis Hamilton and then of course in the constructors I mean it's Red Bulls it's 503 points with Mercedes in second and Aston Martin uh, in third just five ahead of Ferrari as things stand um, but Verstappen just got things so right Bernie and uh, even with that great penalty such a such an impressive performance Yeah a very impressive performance again and I think you know the speed of that car or the speed of particularly Verstappen in that car it's very hard to see whether or not going to be P1 over the year I guess the only hope is taking a gearbox penalty at Spas pretty early in the year we're only halfway really through the season to have taken that gearbox penalty so more of those to come at some point through the year now they can probably do that strategically I guess as and when but it's a real struggle to see where the, where the opportunity is going to come for someone else to win a race if it's not Checo. Now this weekend obviously Checo had a much more positive weekend than he had on the other weekend so and I think that's what he needed to do this weekend. He needed that step of the stone. He needed to get back to the P2 position and have a reasonably strong weekend. Definitely not on the Verstappen pace, but I don't think anyone's expecting him to be on the Verstappen pace. So that it's still positive for him and hopefully he can continue to step to be more of a challenge in the weeks that come. Um, John, is it um, it's certainly a good weekend for, for Checo Perez, but that gap you know, of 22.3 seconds to Perez... Uh, not for a minute suggesting it wasn't a good weekend for him, but is that a little bit embarrassing when you're in the same car as as your teammate and, and he's so, so far ahead? Or is it a case that no matter who the driver is in that second Red Bull, they'd be this far off Max Verstappen? Bit of a statement, you have to say. I mean, Max drove an outstanding race. It was virtually a real perfect race, just carried more pace everywhere. Uh, and, and Sergio did well because he was on, a, on the back foot, having had some disappointments over the previous Grand Prix to get himself back. A, onto the podium, and but on the second podium to support our Red Bull and give them the maximum they could have scored over the weekend. Mm. But it, I don't know who you could put into the second Red Bull. I mean, I know who I would put in. And the person I would put in, and might be a bit early in his career, but I think he is potentially going to be an outstanding Grand Prix driver over many seasons. And it was the driver who finished second in the sprint race, Oscar Piastri. Mm. And I thought that was an outstanding drive from Oscar in his first season in Formula One and a demanding circuit to get second place. I mean, what would Red Bull do? You, they could choose pretty much who they would like. On the other hand, there's a lot of established drivers who could be put in the frame, but they would look and look at Max and think, well, mm. would I not be better off staying where I am in a team and being the de facto number one driver? 
than going into Red Bull and being in effect the riding shotgun, or if you want to be blunt about it, cannon fodder for Max. Yeah, Piastri could be a shout. Like he, he, his performance in that sprint race, Bernie was just impeccable, uh, and, it, and it was a brilliant sprint race to watch. Yeah, I think it was, and you know, good call from McLaren to box him as the safety car was coming in as well, but. Drove very well, held on his pace, had a good qualifying, you know, the qualifying previously had set him up for that position to be in the sprint race and he just didn't put a foot wrong, really. The McLaren was obviously strong in those conditions, but all weekend through both of the qualifying sessions, he looks like he was going to have a real chance of shock and a shock result. And the only reason he didn't probably is because it ended up fully dry on soft tyres. But I think if it had been on the inter-tyre, any of the qualifiers finished, there was a real risk of an upset there from Piastri, which to have that pressure on him. And I'm quite excited, you know, like John suggests, I think it's a good one, but because I'm quite excited to see what he can do. Because this is going to be, we've talked about Spa, we've talked about how much is used as a track. This will be a track that he knows inside out from his junior career and the other tracks have probably been much more a learning curve so by next year when he's had a year at each of the tracks under the belt and had a learning what can he do next year is very exciting going forward I think for him to see what he can bring as he gets more experience and more learning at the tracks we have because this should be a circuit that he knows really well yeah for sure uh, the other thing that I, that I noticed as well, and I'm not going to give out about it because it's quite enjoyable to watch, but the the conversations, the spiky conversations on the on the radio sometimes, John, and there was a few between uh, Max Verstappen and his um, engineer Jean Pierre Lambiassi. Like uh, some of it is is kind of jokey and, and and a little bit of a piss take, but then other other times it can get a little bit feisty. There was one point where Lambiassi tells Verstappen to use his head on tires, um, and later gives out to him for the way he's treated his tires. And Verstappen gets a little bit arrogant at one point and he says he, he could, because he has such a, a big gap, come in for pit stop practice. Uh, and that is quickly shut down by, by his engineer. Um, but I guess on one hand, you want to hear this as a, as a fan of the sport. But on the other hand, you don't want to hear drivers getting too arrogant, John. Well, I mean, it's again part of the show because all this radio traffic has now been opened up. Mm. If you think back to what happened in 21 in Abu Dhabi and your traffic going from the pit wall to the race director to the driver, whatever, I felt that that shouldn't be broadcast. There's a certain amount of stuff that I think is available and should be available to the fans and to the audience. And between the driver and the engineer, or in this case, Christian Horner sitting on the, the pit wall, uh, and Christian doesn't really contribute an awful lot. I mean, he's just getting his hair ready for his own next interview, really. Mm. So um, I think it's the bit that went on between engineer and driver. Okay, it's, it's you know, whatever. It, it, I can't say... I find it amusing or entertaining. Mm. I would rather, it, if it was going to take place, that it was done in a manner which was appropriate to the respect of the driver to the engineer and the engineer to the driver. I've been, uh, as I said there, in the standings, Bernie Hamilton just a point off Fernando Alonso now, and uh, Alonso's third, Hamilton's fourth in the driver's standings. Uh, it feels like because Verstappen's running away with the title that this could become maybe a little mini talking point or something for us to get excited about. Uh, a battle between two of the veterans, Alonso and Hamilton. And um, well, Hamilton getting the better of the action at the weekend, a, a good performance from him, albeit he would have loved a podium. Yeah, I think so. I think Hamilton's shown, and the Mercedes has shown strong improvement in pace over the last few weekends. So it's going to be really interesting. I think that battle for P2 and the constructors or the Hamilton-Alonso battle, who else is going to be fit to join in there in the Drivers' Championship, that's where our interest is at this year. And that P2 battle, particularly if you think of teams and car pace, is really interesting because it's really difficult to call at the minute. McLaren have put themselves in there, but they're not this week. Aston Martin's starting to make some progress at maybe stepping back to where they were at the start of the year, but still not there. So that's really interesting, I think, for me, because it's not. it doesn't seem to be very circuit specific who can do well it seems a bit more random than that it's a bit more down to upgrades and things we're not quite sure so that's I think the the more interesting talking point for the rest of the year because I think the P1 position barring something really out there is is lost The the Ferrari experience at the weekend uh, John mixed for sure uh, Carlos Sainz of course has that um, clash at La Source with Piastri Um which, which of course, is impact signs. Some people saying he should have given uh, the McLaren a little bit more room. 
But um, on the other hand, Charlotte Clare gets a, gets a podium. So it, it's one of those weekends for Ferrari. I suppose they'd take it, given they've had some disappointing results of late, but but certainly a mixed weekend for Ferrari. Well, certainly Leclerc did what he was there to do. And the only way you're going to beat Red Bull is actually to take them out of the equation, ban them for the rest of the season. And then you'll have a cracking championship battle to the end of the year. But, but they're there and there's, they are at the minute unchallengeable on any and every circuit that we're going to go to. The disappointment for Ferrari was coming into La Source, Sainz locked up a front wheel, which didn't help. There was a gap which Piastri rightly saw being available to him. But then as they got into the corner, you got that sort of sort of bottleneck effect where the cars to the left of Sainz were coming down an end, and he had to move into what at that point would look free-ish space. But what he hadn't calculated was that Piastri was committed, and so they, they met at the most critical part Piastri did all he could to avoid the collision and ended up breaking his right front suspension. And his left wheel then tore a lump out of the bodywork of the Ferrari. It's typical of what happens in the source. I watched Piastri and I thought he was very conservative up to the point where he saw the gap. He didn't, he wasn't off the line like a hare. He seemingly was just, but I would say being very conservative. But the gap was there, but it then became very rapidly this closing gap. And closing gaps, as you know, at the source, usually end up in tears. Um, Bernie, George Russell's performance, like he finishes sixth, which he'll absolutely take. Um, but, you know, especially considering he loses those three places towards the start of the race. But certainly this season, a lot of times he's been outscored uh, by Lewis Hamilton, his Mercedes teammate, um, which might annoy him a little bit across the next number of weeks. Like, Russell feels like the driver who, although he's with, he's paired with one of the greatest drivers of all time, feels like he, he wants to be, his ego wants him to be the number one driver, but it's just not happening at the moment. Yeah, and I think there was signs maybe towards the end of last year or the beginning of this year where they were very evenly matched or they seemed very close in terms of what was happening, their qualifying, their finishing positions, whatever. And it, it sort of feels like, I don't think George's position has changed but it feels like Hamilton's got the bit between his teeth a bit. The car's improved a bit. He's pushing on a little bit further now. So it's interesting that we've seen, even just in his demeanour and how he appears on TV, whatever it might be, it seems like Hamilton has sort of almost finished moping about that the car's not quick enough and just cracking on with the job now. And that's starting to open the gap. So it's going to be very interesting how George responds to that within that team. And it is going to be interesting to see I imagine there's this, and maybe John was better than it, but within that team, within the drivers, you can either be upset that the guy's doing better than you, or you can start looking through his data and figure out what you need to do better. And that decision point is there now for George. Can he just crack on and get the work done, put the work in? You know, he's the younger driver and he's definitely got capacity to learn and he should be looking every day at what Lewis is doing and saying, well, can I match that? And if not, why not? Um, so it's going to be interesting. I think the next few events are going to be a bit crucial for George in that way. That's a fair point, John, isn't it? The, the Bernie makes that you, you, you there, there's a level of maturity to looking at your t- your teammate and maybe just picking up little tidbits of information from him. Well, I think what people overlook is that Lewis has got such a amount of reserve, uh, ability, capacity, and maybe at different points early in the season when they're seemingly close, more closely matched. But when Lewis starts to focus and starts to do the job that he knows he's capable of, it's a pretty tough challenge. I mean, you're, you're talking about Max and, and Red Bull. Well, Lewis and Mercedes is the same kind of uh, difficult teammate to get on top of. Now, George won the Brazil Grand Prix last year and did it brilliantly. Seemed that that sort of, he's reached a point where he's reached a sort of a roadblock. And to get around that roadblock, roadblock he has to find ways to improve his own performance and his performance vis-a-vis that of Lewis. And sometimes it's not just quite the simple thing. This this lateral thinking sometimes is a helpful way of looking at problems rather than saying, well, this is what Lewis is doing. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. There may be other alternative ways of finding how can I improve my performance with my engineering team, with my equipment, because he's proven last year he can win a race. He won that Brazil Grand Prix. And he made it look supreme. And um, one team, Bernie, that we don't talk about too often, but that are certainly struggling is is Alpine. 
and we, we I saw Lane Pross talking during the week saying he was saddened and distressed by what's going on at, at at the team and certainly at the moment management ructions as well not helping. You saw team principal Otmar Zafnar become becoming the latest to to see the exit door. Long time engineers gone as well. Uh, Pat Fry being one of them heading off to Williams, Alan Permain as well. Um and veterans of the game. So you've got decades of experience heading out the exit door. So, uh, albeit on the track, Esteban Ocon scored some points for Alpine at the weekend. Off the track, it's it's concerning at the moment for the team, isn't it? Well, the weekend looked like a, a turn-up, really, compared to previous weekends in terms of you know the points that, that Esteban was able to score. The management, like, I, I have no idea what's going on there because, you know, they, they lost an executive manager a few weeks earlier then to lose... Omar, Alan Permain, I think, is the biggest shock out of that. Having been there, I think, 34 years was what was quoted that he's been within that team or, or working within that organisation. It feels like someone's just come in and said, right, we're going to sweep the board and start again. And, OK, there are some organisations where that works and that needs to be done. But mid-season in an F1 team with someone like Permain's experience he's you know very active over a race weekend very active on the pit well I've not worked with him personally but you know, that's the impression you get from the outside someone you know like Otmar I've obviously worked with extensively in the past through Force India and the recent point days very crucial I'd say as like a you know a CAO or management stuff probably not in the nitty-gritty of a weekend working of an F1 team probably more a long-term thing so actually to lose someone in that position week in week out maybe doesn't necessarily affect the results, but someone in the sort of Alan or Pat Fry position, very strongly integrated to what is happening on the ground over race weekend, really interesting. So I don't I'm not quite I don't quite understand mm. why it's happened like that or why the sweep midway through the season. And there's going to be a lot of picking up to be done in the background of the rules or you know, particularly again sort of Alan's position what's done on the pit wall, the sport and director role, they're very influential on who calls the pit stops, what happens in certain incidents, front wing changes, collisions, all these things. You know, what even the FIA means and the direction of regulation changes, there's been a lot of talk about um, trying to equalise engine regs. Like, who, who's getting involved in all, you know, that all needs to happen from their side now. So what's happening with all of that? So mm. It just, something's fundamentally wrong in the setup of that. And it's going to be interesting to see how they react. And just as a very aside note, obviously, you know, we heard that I think it was Mackie's from Ferrari's going to not be on the pit wall anymore as their sporting director. And I actually think that has maybe a bigger influence than sort of, you know, the Fred Vassar, very high management stuff on the immediate race begins. It's going to be interesting to see how those first race back after shutdown, how that team works in terms of the reaction to any incident that happens. And they obviously would have, John Alpine set themselves targets. They wanted to, I guess, finish fourth again this season. Um, but, and also move a little bit closer beyond that to the, to the top three teams. But instead, McLaren and, and Aston Martin have, uh, swept them aside really and taken over from them. So you can see why from a performance perspective, they'd want to change things up. But, but maybe mid season seems like a, a strange time. Seemed like the night of the long knives. I mean, frankly, the management of the company, not the not the, not the uh, Mars or Alan Vermeer or Pat Fries, but above them, maybe they had what could be loosely described as utterly and totally unrealistic expectations. And the only way that they could see to to, in their view, to get back onto that track that they believe they should be on is to kick out the people who know what it needs to be done. Need, what's what are we going to do to make this car better? What are we going to do to make the team better? How are we going to improve our, you know, what, every element of what is involved at a Grand Prix? And if I was a member of the Renault, sorry, Alpine, I shouldn't call it Renault, Alpine team, I would be looking nervously at my terms and conditions of contract because if that's what they do to the senior management of the team, then there is nobody in the team whose position is called stable. And certainly for the likes of Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly, they must be thinking, if they fire people who have got contracts, we have got contracts, but they're prepared to just, would they, would they fire either of us? I find it an unedifying an moment for a team that used to be, when it was Renault, a great team. Very unedifying. 
Yeah, the timing just, just seemed a little bit off, uh, for sure. Guys, before we before we finish up, I just want to touch on the, uh, the I, I don't know if we discussed it before, but the tyre blanket situation, Bernie, uh, the FIA has postponed a ban on tyre warming blankets. This was due to be uh, introduced from next season. Drivers had, had kind of expressed concerns that this was uh, a safety risk, removing these these tyre blankets. Um, and I think the decision from the FIA is made, as they say, on sustainability grounds, uh, as opposed to anything else. Um, and I know there was a raft of different decisions made at, at, at recent F1 meetings as well. So is this one that, that will be generally discussed in the paddock or is it more of a minor issue? I think it's a, I think it's a big talking point. I think that, you know, if we look at the other side, so we've got rid of the tyre blankets on the wet, but the wet was only heated to 40 degrees. So that's actually quite a small change. And in those sort of conditions, the tyre quickly cools down anyway. If we think of a soft tyre, that's heated to 70 degrees. So that's actually substantial when you think of totally removing that. And we're, it's going to have a real influence on lots of things that people need to really sit down carefully and think through. So, for example, in qualifying, you're going to go out, you might have to have a, a quicker outlap and it might not be lap one anymore. It might be lap two or lap three. So we're going to end up with more laps happening in qualifying. Things like our safety car if when we go round and we're sat on the grid on the formation lap, actually the tyres are still in their blankets on that grid in their formation lap. So again, even lap one of the race is going to become more dangerous because you've got a whole load of tyres there that aren't up to temperature. And I think we've not done enough testing or the feedback from the testing that I've seen so far with the no blankets is it's not there yet. Mm. We're not at a point where we can say, you know, we've talked so much about safety in this episode that we can say, 20 drivers going off the grid on cold tyres on Sunday into turn one is the right thing to do. And that is fundamentally going to be the point. And we are there. There's lots and lots of ways. I'm sure it's discussed in many, many things that we can see of energy, fuel, resource, whatever it might be. You know, last week we had the different tyre allocation, which sees two sets. And again, that's probably more than the blankets are for all the other sets. Mm. So there's lots of things that we can do that I think are probably more powerful than the blankets. And I'm not sure where all the focus has come on it, but my the impression I get from those that I speak to in the pit lane is it's viewed as very negative to try and get rid of the blankets. It's viewed as something that people don't think is going to work in the way that the FIA do. So I'm not surprised that we've had this delay of a year. Um, and let's see where we get to the end of that. Absolutely. Now, we've got a, a four-week break now, similar to the to the drivers and the engineers and everyone else that works in the media at the at the F1. So Wednesday, August 30th, I think I'm right in saying, is our next episode. We'll be reviewing the, the Dutch Grand Prix, which will have happened the weekend previous, and uh, previewing Italy as well. Was it, it, is this always a, an exciting time for, for people involved in Formula 1, guys? I, I'm, Bernie, I'm sure it's it's a, it's nice to have the break. Even from a mental health perspective, all the travelling around the world for, for everyone involved is a, is a relief. Oh yeah, like cause I think I wasn't in spa this weekend, but it always does feel like a bit like last day at school before summer. People are talking about their summer holidays and what they're doing. Interestingly, this week at spa, so this Tuesday, Wednesday, a lot of the teams are staying for a tire test, probably tire test this afternoon. So some of them will have got to what they feel like is the end and then had to keep going for a few more days. It it does in, in the F1 circuit, it's relentless now, the work that you put in, what you're doing. I always felt it was really good because it's totally it's a blanket FIA ban, so it's laptops off, phones on. Nobody's contacting you about anything. The emails aren't built on up. There's no, should I just check this or that? So it it is needed. And as much as some of the teams or some people are resilient because it forces you to have your holidays and school holidays, it's definitely needed and they need to keep it because it teams mentally need it mm. for the break. I'm going to try and take a, a break as well. And then I am going to be back in Zandvoort um, for Sky. So, and Zandvoort would be a good, fun one to come back to. So mm-hmm. I think it is really positive for the teams because the second half of the year looks pretty brutal. We're going to smash a lot of races in very quickly. Yeah, it's quick. John, did you always enjoy the enjoy the break, the, the glass of wine in Italy, or did you head off and relax away from the look, look, Shane, Shane, get real. <laughs> First of all, tire warmers... In the 70s, we had tyre compounds that were like concrete and clay. <laughs> you didn't have tyre warmers. You had what the ambient temperature was. Mm. Now, I understand the problem with tyre warmers is you're going, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of going cold turkey, if you want to use the phrase, going from tyre warmers to no tyre warmers. 
So maybe there's a, there's a, a more gradual tapering off or doing something to try and effect a change that these little darlings, mommy, mommy, I can't wait till we got tire warmers. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, are these race drivers, what are they? You know, get out there. Those are the rules. But, but take into account the potential downsides of, you know, the, a safety reason. But you know, anyway, I'm getting a bit too old to be on this program because I'm going to say <laughs> things that I'm going to get myself into trouble with. On the other hand, we only had about 16 Grand Prix a year. So we raced through the season. Season started in January in South America and ended up in North America, usually at Watkins Glen or at either Mossport or at Montreal. And then there was a three-month break in which time then you, you were able to relax, do what you wanted to do. I mean, holidays. I mean, first of all, the holidays, I know Bernie and people as Bernie's contemporaries and other teams, they work exceptionally hard. And, and it's, a, it's a brutal, brutal uh, program you have to be involved in. But as a Formula One driver, I always considered my profession was a, was a holiday. It was, I, I didn't take holidays because my profession provided me 16 times a year with a break. Mm, different yeah. times Shane different times <laughs> different times yeah yeah well the, it was a stressful job as well I'm sure driving at those speeds around some of those no 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 it wasn't our cars were not that quick <laughs> the current cars are quick and the current cars are quick with such high levels of downforce and the aero effect and all that so that's a, an entirely different level of uh, motorsport to what I was a part of yeah no that's fair um, guys regardless enjoy the break enjoy the time off and uh, appreciate all you've, you've you've done for us on the F1 pod so far and I uh, look forward to catching up on the on the far side thanks a million Shane, Shane on the point of catching up I'm actually going up the river Spain next week to try and catch a salmon so I'll, I'll think about you saying catch up and I'll try and catch a salmon absolutely <laughs> no, that, that, that's a brilliant way to spend a break to be fair get a bit of fishing in for sure absolutely <laughs> great stuff great stuff brilliant stuff John and Bernie thanks a million thank okay. you Chris, Thanks, guys, that's the F1 pod on Off the Ball. We will we will be back on that that day that I mentioned. Four week break, Wednesday, August thirtieth, reviewing the Dutch and previewing the Italian Grand Prix. So that's Bernie Collins, F1 pundit and former head of race strategy with the Aston Martin team, and John Watson, former F1 driver and five time Grand Prix winner. That is the F1 pod. Back with you soon. Thanks a million. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One, yeah, we go to town on it.